Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Today on the podcast, the Seek Museums of Russellville, Kentucky. Seek struggles for emancipation equality in Kentucky. According to their website, the Seek Museums are comprised of six historic buildings that have been restored to tell the unique stories beginning with the arrival of Revolutionary War Major Richard Bibb and the people enslaved by him in Russellville. Bibb eventually emancipated nearly 100 enslaved people, and the museums tell the stories of their struggles for equality and justice over the last two centuries. The Sikh Museum is located in a section of Russellville known as the Bottom. It is designated as a National Register Historic District that was settled primarily by newly freed persons after the Civil War, who became a vibrant residential and commercial neighborhood. Our guides through the museum are Kentucky Humanities Board member Dr. Selena Doss, an African-American historian at Western Kentucky University, and the director of the Seek Museum, Michael Morrow. The Gran, who is referred to in the conversation, is Russellville attorney Gran Clark. Michael, Selena, thanks for sitting down with Kentucky Humanities Think Humanities podcast. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Michael, let's begin with you. And the question is, what do you expect people to learn and see, educate themselves when they travel to Russellville and come to this area of Russellville and visit the Seek Museum? I expect them to learn about the history of African Americans from slavery on up to civil rights. Uh, Dealing with slavery, dealing with education, dealing with racial violence, dealing with how the community grew and some of the leaders who were in the community and the part they played in local, state, and national history. What have you done personally? Give us an idea about your involvement, how you got involved, and what you've done uh, as, um, by the way, what's your title? They call me a director. Some people call me the handyman, the carpenter. My brother called me hey man. He said I got so many jobs here. (laughs) (laughs) I was supposed to be the director. So what did you do in the very beginning to um, to realize uh, that this could be what it has become today? Well, in the beginning, all we done was work. We, you know, trying to save some stuff. When I was a kid, people just found out that I like history. And at that, that time, it was a lot of old teachers who were still living, who taught in the old colored schools. And a lot of people don't understand that you had these segregated schools prior to integration, and you had all these colored teachers. Well, when integration came, a lot of the black teachers didn't get to teach, but a lot of them still had the books, the pictures, and the things that they used in those old colored schools to teach with. And they found out that I like history, so they just started giving me all this stuff. For a long, I 
end up with a bunch of stuff that dealt with African-American history here. Selena Doss, uh, a, um, a proud member of our Kentucky Humanities Board of Directors, uh, I'm so happy to say, uh, professor at uh, Western Kentucky University. You've been involved in the project for several years, probably much longer than, than I've known you, and, and it, you've been a, a member of our Board of Directors. The same question to you about what people should expect to see and learn and, and why it's important if they come to Russellville to the Sikh Museum. Well, people should expect to see local Russellville black history um, from slavery to civil rights. It has, as Michael was saying, um, with that history, violence, but also um, redemption uh, stories of uh, success and uplift. So all that... Um, Right now, there are four renovated buildings and they're working on a fifth with the Bib House and in each building, it tells a different story, um, whether it be education or um, some of the violence that took place. But they can also expect to see not just Russellville history, but um, Kentucky black history too. It's grown. Um, from my understanding, it's grown so much since Michael's early collections and people now send him stuff and donate things to him. Um, and so they can see uh, larger stories of um, in Louisville or other areas of Kentucky. And for even some of the serious researchers, grad students, if they have the opportunity to see some of the collections that um, the Sikh Museum that Michael and Grant have um, uh, organized over the years. It is a just wellspring of knowledge and artifacts and um, untold stories. So those looking to do more kind of in-depth research to this this is a wonderful place to start or to be sure and touch on as a historian at mm -hmm. western uh, before you uh, met michael or or uh, learned uh, of the story had you ever heard of the yeah. of this area or, or what uh, wellspring as you said uh, that has now been found? No, it was actually just a whim. My dad had told me, um, there's this museum in Kentucky. I don't know if he was watching TV or heard it on the right radio. And um, he said, there's this mu this black history museum in Kentucky and I want, want to go to it. And I said, oh, is it in Louisville? He's like, no, it's not in Louisville. And that's all I had to go on. So I got on Google, started searching. Oh, okay. It's it's close to Nashville, it's local museum. And I found um, Michael and um, uh, my whole family, my mom, my dad, myself, and my niece, we came up here. Or I gave them a call and arranged a tour. And um, I was just fat 
uh, by what they had collected and done. And from that initial meeting, I, I think that day we actually went to the local um, restaurant and had lunch af afterwards too. But um, from that day, I just, I, I wanted to be a part and um, him and Grand uh, offered uh, if I wanted to lend some of my help to it, they, they were open. And so I was excited that I could be a part of something that was already so fabulous and wonderful and contributing so much. Michael, um, as Selena referred to, uh, there is a, a violent part of this story um, that's now been captured in a, in a new documentary that uh, a lot of people will be uh, seeing. But if you're, if you're talking about uh, that aspect of the story and, and what took place here, uh, I want you to tell us that story too, uh, which cannot be avoided and needs to be learned and understood and studied. So tell me about some of, um, maybe the, the place to start there would be the Bibb family. Well, the Bibb family, you know, they were a wealthy family and they owned a lot of slaves. Uh, Major Bibb, he came in here in early 1800s and I think he went up to Lexington while he was up at the old coal mines in Bullitt County and different things and eventually he migrated to Logan County and he had a farm here with a lot of slaves on it. Um, in 1832 something came over him where he decided to send 32 slaves back to Liberia, Africa. And then his death in 1839 he freed 65 more slaves, gave them land, tools, implements, and money. And after that, those slaves, they went on, those uh, recently enslaved Africans, they went on and started farming the land and things like that. And what we've done, we've just researched it all the way back to tell people that story to get a clear understanding of what went on because most of us didn't really know what went on. You know, you heard that Major Bill freed his slaves, but what happened to them? Where did the slaves go? How did they fare? And that's kind of the story we tell them at the Bill House. Tell me that story. Tell me what you found uh, about the slaves uh, that he held and then freed, and just what happened to some of them. Well, some of them fared pretty well. Some of them didn't. Um, some of them uh, end up taking the land and making a good living out of it. Uh, one group, you know, he freed them and he gave them two separate plots. One was Upper Bill Town and Lower Bill Town. And then the paperwork, it said that the ones in Upper Bill Town, the first year of freedom, they brought in crops. But the ones in Lower Bill Town, the first year of freedom, they didn't, their crops didn't come and they didn't do to where. But when you went back to look at it, the ones in Upper Bill Town had this good land the ones in Lower Bill Town was actually f farming rocks. <laughs> so, you know, it kind of turned out bad for them, but they eventually made it. Each group eventually made it and done pretty well for itself. Uh, Andrew, which was one of them, he went up to Louisville before the Civil War, went to work in the customs house up there. He eventually became a carpenter and done pretty well for itself. And Mary Catherine, who 
was said to have been a descendant of Major Bibbs. She had a lot of descendants who are still here and some of her land is still in the family's hands. Uh, then you had uh, Nancy, and Nancy didn't want to live in the country. So she asked John Biggerbib, who was Major Bibbs' son, who was the executive of the will, to sell her land in the country and move her in town. And she bought land down in this area here, over on 7th Street. But the, what, what kind of messes me with Nancy is that uh, after she got her land sold, the first thing she asked John Bigger to be able to do was to buy her a cake license. And she started selling cakes. And this is in 1840. So if my guess is right, she's probably one of the, if not the first, African-American businesswoman in Logan County. You know, So there were a lot of good stories to come out of. And then we traced one group up to... Centralia, Illinois, and we traced another group to Kansas, one group to St. Louis. So we're just kind of slowly putting it all back together. Selena, what can you add to that story? Uh, well, I came into um, the Sikh Museum with the knowledge about colonization and um, a little bit about Kentucky Colonization Society and going to Liberia. Which Henry uh, Clay was a major figure uh, in that movement uh, when it occurred. That's right. Mm -hmm. And um, his um, set settlement, Clay Ashland, and, um, and Kentucky in Liberia as, as well, that he helped settle. Um, I'm not sure how much I brought to the Seat Museum, but they definitely uh, helped me in my research. So while I was playing around with Kentucky, Kentucky colonization, I learned more about uh, the Bibb family and um, did more in-depth research about Kentucky colonization. So of the um, former bondsmen that were sent to Liberia, it's thought that most of them probably died. The mortality rate was very high. Um, there was a story that a couple of um, women, I think Lavinia and Lydia, uh, had went off into the forest and were never seen. Um, but there were just only kind of rumors and hearsay um, about what had happened to the um, black settlers who went over. So I um, included uh, the Bibb story in this larger story about uh, black colonization and immigration from Kentucky. As a Kentucky humanities lover, you've heard of Spalding University's nationally distinguished MFA in creative writing. Now at the Naslin Mann Graduate School of Writing, we've added two innovative programs in professional writing. Your career goals take center stage as you work one-on-one -on -one with a faculty mentor to gain the writing skills employer's prize. Learn more about our low residency master's and certificate in professional writing at spalding.edu forward slash writing or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. The violence that you mentioned, yeah. because uh, although it, it could have occurred and did occur 
over the entire state of Kentucky. Uh, was there more of a prevalence of, of, of violence against blacks, lynchings here than in other locales? Well, Logan County has the second highest lynching of people in the state. From my research, I've only found one place that had more than Logan County, that was Fulton County. And then West Kentucky has a whole lot. Now why, I don't know. I theorize, this is just my theory, that a lot of the people who came back to Western Kentucky after the war were very bitter. And these were the people who were doing a lot of these things, but I don't really know why. But for some reason in Western Kentucky, once you check those counties out, they have a lot of lynchings. And in the documentary and in, in, in the research that, that I've read and, and looked into, there were a couple of incidences that you talk about quite well uh, of particular individuals who unfortunately did not survive that period. Mm -hmm. Well, the 1908 lynching was probably the, it was the last one here in Logan County and it was probably, I guess you would say, one of the most infamous ones in the state. And the reason I think it was so infamous because not only did it deal with lynching, it started dealing with politics. Uh, most of the Republicans lined up on the side of the small farmers. Most of the Democratic, I mean on, on the sharecroppers and stuff, but most of the Democrats lined up on the side of the farmers. So not only did you have this lynching going on, you had all this political stuff going on. So it not only went across the state papers and went across the nation, national papers. And I guess it shamed the leadership here to such that they kind of put an end to it. But uh, the 1908 lynching, John Jones, Virgil Jones, John Boy, and Joe Riley, you know, they were just really lynched for nothing. Uh, Joe Riley had been nothing but got drunk and shot a pistol in there and he just happened to be in jail when the mob come to get the other three. That's the reason he was lynched. Uh, John Boyer, when Rufus Browder killed Cunningham, which is the story in um, 1908, Rufus Browder shot and killed uh, the, sh the overseer of the farm. Cunningham didn't even own the farm. He worked for Dr. Jesse Russell. And Rufus shot and killed him. And his brother-in-law, John Boyer, was telling him what was going around in the house because the mob was looking for him. So he was arrested for hindering prosecution. And John and Virgil Jones, they were arrested because they had threatened one of the lodge members who didn't come to Rufus, uh, to the protection of Rufus's family. So by August the 1st, 1908, all of them in jail, and then the mob descends on the jail and takes them out and lynches them. Um, they lynch them one at a time. They lynched uh, one and made the other three look. Then they lynched the next one, made the other two look. Then they lynched the next one, made the last one. Then they lynched the last one. And the purpose of this, I've always thought, you know, was to scare all the other black people in this region. And so a lot of people don't know at the same time, similar things were going on in Todd County at the exact same time. You know, so it was a tactic to scare blacks and put them, quote unquote, back in their place. Did that occur, did those uh, those four in 1908 occur 
near this location? Oh, about three, four blocks from there. Mm -hmm. And it was a spectacle that the public attended, and as far as you know, no, it wasn't a spectacle. What they done? Because on the night Rufus killed Cunningham, a mob came to town to get Rufus. The night he killed Cunningham, but they put Rufus and hid him in the black cemetery. So, what ended up happening was they snuck Rufus out of here the next morning and sent him to Bowling Green. And then they heard that a mob was going to attack the Bowling Green jail, so they had to send him from Bowling Green to Louisville. And he stayed there until his trials came up. After that was over, they arrested these guys about July the 18th, July the 19th. And from the time they arrested them, the local authorities kind of tried to protect them, but nothing happened, so they kind of let their guard down. And on August uh, what would it have been July the 30th, 31st, 1908? They said that that night people were slowly drifting in town. And about 12 30, 1 o'clock, the telegraph lines were cut. And then a mob descended on the jail and took them all out and took them and hung them. But nobody really knew they were coming because there wasn't no big fanfare. It was just the mob that done it. It wasn't like a big spectacle where people would bring picnic baskets and right. stuff like that. It was just late at night in the mob. Yeah. Uh, uh, the bodies were found that morning by a guy named D.B. Estes. And D.B. Estes was uh, superintendent of public instruction for Logan County, but he was also a former Confederate veteran who had fought with the Orphan Brigade. And he discovered the bodies, he said, taking his cows out to pasture. Hmm. Selena, from from a historian's point of view, if you were addressing other historians uh, in, in another part of the country, let's say, or in another part of Kentucky for that matter, what would you tell them that they could find here that, that would be valuable to their interests, their, their perspective, um, their research? Well, there's, <coughs> there's just so, so much. Um, there are thousands of photographs uh, that tell the story of um, black culture, whether it's um, hair and uh, women and cooking and cel celebrations or family life. Um, they'll find uh, obituaries, um, thousands from all over the state, uh, some dating back to the 19th, late 19th century. Um, they can be used to kind of gauge uh, black occupations, black life includes into that. Uh, not to mention the secondary sources. I could spend hours looking at the books, um, the mon monographs just on uh, Kentucky black history and larger black history as well. Currently, they're working on a database of um, black pastors throughout the state, again, going back to the 19th century. Um, and even before the Civil War. And so um, in some of the obituaries, you know, things like pastors will be listed or um, some local churches also donate their records. Um, on Bank Street AME Zion mm -hmm. Church. And so uh, gradually collecting all that information to build um, a database where we can uh, see 
pastors and church leadership um, even make that transition from slavery to freedom and seeing those those same uh, leaders emerge in the black com community. So um, that's just part, but well, I was going to let me uh, because Michael and I talked a little bit about this, and uh, this is being done in Logan County and Russellville. Mm -hmm. um, do you think there are the artifacts and and repositories in other small Kentucky towns that might uh, reveal a as much of the past as Michael and his uh, troops have found here in Russellville? Um, I don't know. It, it, it could be, but I will say what what I've observed, what's been done here in Russellville is extraordinary. And this is decades in the making. So I think there could be the potential, but the circumstances, um, this man, his place in the community and, uh, and the respect and, and the way the entire community has supported this um, mission by donating um, pamphlets and uh, church um, bro brochures and things to sub support, support it. it. It could be rep replicated, but I'm not sure if it's be being done in, in anywhere else right now. So. Michael, give us a, um, a, a picture of uh, if we were taking a walking tour of uh, the, the bottom what are the houses that have been restored? A little bit about each one of those, and again, why they are significant and why you're you're starting with these houses. Although, on a historical marker just outside where we're sitting, there are how many identifiable houses you found? What's the what's the number uh, uh, there? It's twenty twenty two identify identifiable houses and lots where we kind of understand what happened there. Uh, like we got the Payne Dunnigan house which was uh, named after Ruby uh, Dunnigan who was uh, Dunnigan Payne was Alice Allison's Dunnigan's sister-in-law and that's the little white house where we have the Dunnigan exhibit in. We were trying to buy the brick house which is the oldest building, brick building in Russellville. When we went to buy the brick house, the guy said, well, I'm not going to sell y'all the brick house unless y'all buy this little white house. Well, we had no idea nothing about the white house, so we were bought and we worked on this old guy named Mr. Moe's Gaines came past and said, well, y'all bought Ruby Dunnigan's house. I said, Ruby Dunnigan says, yeah, that's Alice Dunnigan's sister-in-law's house. Yeah. Alice used to come here and stay with her all the time. Well, we had no knowledge of this. And we're going to talk about Alice Dunnigan in just a minute, but uh, yeah. th that's the Dunnigan connection that yeah. I wanted. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the house next door, we found it was the oldest brick house in Russellville. We later found out that it was owned by the Cardwell family and the Morton family, who was the white family, married into the Cardwells. Well, we later found out that these two women who raised David Morton, who was one of the big people in the Methodist Church in Kentucky before the Civil War and after the Civil War that these two women who raised them I think it was Betsy and Eva if my memory is something correct they made this quilt and this quilt is one of the famous quilts it's in the Metropolitan Museum in New York 
and we had a woman come here a couple of months ago to study this quill. But again, we had no knowledge. Uh, we found a 1792 penny in uh, up under the ground at that house. No. We also found all these old leather we found shoes. A 1792. That's the, the 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 date of Kentucky's yeah. uh, uh, birth. Uh huh. You found that a penny in that house. Up under the ground, and we, what we done? We tore all the floors out, and then we sifted the dirt for about that deep. We found um. A lot of shoes, old leather shoes, but then we later found out that David Caldwell was a leather man. He made shoes. And so we kind of done that. Then the next house we bought was the Cooksey house, which was across the street. When we bought it, we had no idea. We just knew that uh, it was a nice house and we was trying to get, kind of get the land around the museum so we wouldn't have no unwanted neighbors. And we found out that the Cookses were a free black family who got free before the Civil War. And when we went in that house and started digging on the floor, we found 500 pieces of flint and different things where you could tell Indians had been there. So we collected all that catalog that and put that up. We also went through the house to strip all the paint out and we found all these colors up under the bottom of the paint. So instead of us changing the colors, we just put every back thing back the way we found it. Everything back the same colors and everything as we found it. Then the next house we bought, it was uh, right beside that, it was the Orndorff house, Townsend Orndorff. When I was coming up as a kid, it was this woman and her husband, Mr. Carl Townsend, and this woman was my cousin. They sold barbecue chicken out of the back door of that house. They sold the compound chest pot. And I would always go over and look pitiful, so this woman would give me some pie. <laughs> but I didn't have any idea about the history of the house. We later found out that the house belonged to a guy named Wesley Orndorff. Well, when I went to D.C. a few years ago, I knew he'd fought in the Civil War, so I tried to pull his pension file, pull his pension file. And in his pension file, he says that he was at the Battle of Saltville, Virginia, and he was at the Saltville Massacre, where they went to give blacks quarter. He said that he shot a cannon, they shot a cannon, and when they shot it, he put his hands up to his ears. And when they shot the cannon, he pulled his hands down, there was blood in both his hands. He later came back, and he, in one of the cases, they referred to him as the idiot, because they said because he couldn't hear and everything, that he, they would just give him odd and jobs around town to help him out. His son would eventually take care of him, and his son was named James Orndorff. He would become a barber. And eventually, C.C. Vaughn, who was a Civil War soldier, preacher, teacher, and he was also on the board of Berea, he was a friend of Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington, and he marched in the 50th anniversary parade of emancipation with Frederick Douglass's oldest son. He lived in this house over there, so we found out that he was the payee for this guy. And he got this guy his pension, and he took that pension and took the money and built the house. But we mm. knew, didn't know none of this until we started getting into the houses and figuring out who all these names yeah. were. Michael, who has assisted you in doing some of this work? Well, Selena, uh, had Dr. Dawson. Then most of us, it's just been people in the community. Look, kids, we, we, we've had youth groups where we bring kids in and train them and teach them how to do this stuff and 
Some of them get an interest in it and love it, and some of them throw books at you and leave, say, I don't want to be bothered with this. But for the most part, the community, one thing I think that has helped us out a lot, there were a lot of old people here who were very interested in history. So when we started this, instead of them fighting us, they all jumped on board and they start telling us stuff and it helped us out a lot. Uh, finally, I want you to tell me the story about Alice Dunnigan and the statue that is uh, erected and uh, available for viewing just, just less than a half a block from where we're sitting for this interview. Who she was and why she's significant to not only Russellville, but should be to the world, and certainly should be important to Kentucky. Yeah. Well, I, I tell people, the first time I heard Alice Dunnigan's name was my grandmother, and would say Alice's coming to town. I was young, so I didn't care nothing about it. I didn't even know who no Alice was. And one night, we was at the park, and her great-nephew was a guy named Chuck Allison. And Chuck told us, he said, my aunt works at the White House for the president. She worked with the president and everybody. Now, you know, we young teenagers in. Oh man, we told him to him. <laughs> we told him that she worked there. She was mopping floors and washing windows and we gave him down the road. Well, the next day, I lived next door. Somebody was knocking on the door. Boom, 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 boom. My mama said, who is that beating on that door like that? And I go to the door, it's Chuck and he's got this big fat book. He said, you're so damn smart, read this. <laughs> so he gave me his book. I look at it and I start laughing. And I actually take the book and just lay it behind the door on the shelf and walk off. But I think, I've I, 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 I've been trying to remember what I've done at school. I've done something at school and they expelled me for a week. <laughs> right after that. And during that week, I didn't have nothing to do. So I sat down and read the book. Well, it blew my mind. Nobody told me that a woman that lived in Russellville had interviewed Dr. King, Thurgood Marshall, A. Philip Randolph, Jackie Robinson, Joe Lewis, John F. Kennedy, Jackie Onassis, Lady Bird, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Harry S. Truman, Dwight Dutton, and she came from Russellville. Nobody never told us about this. It just messed me up. So I got to telling people about it, and they would just look at me like I was crazy. About uh, 15 years ago, this woman named Dr. Nancy Dawson came here from Clarksville. She was looking for some information on these bib slaves, so I was helping her. And then eventually she moved to Russellville. So one day me and her was talking, and I told her about this Alice Dunnigan. And she done the same thing I done to Chuck. <laughs> she said, oh, ain't nobody here lived there like that. I don't know. She's a black history professor. She said, I don't know nothing about that. If, I, if somebody was like that living in Russell, I'd know about it. So I had to do the check. I had to go get the book and said, read this. Yeah. And she read it, and it blew her mind. So when we got ready to open up the museum, we asked the Board of Historic Russellville, could we do an exhibit on Alice Dunnigan? And they said, yes. And then we wrote a grant to get money to go and research Dunnigan. And at that time, me and her went to Washington, D.C. to the, I think it's Moreland Springer Library at Howard. It's, I think it's what they call it, Moreland Springer. And we go in and we <laughs> ask the woman, we say, 
we want to look at the Dunnigan collection. She said, Dunnigan collection? She said, we, I don't even know if we got a collection here called Dunnigan collection. So she, she goes back and she comes back. She said, well, we got one here. It's been here about 10 or 15 years, but ain't nobody ever seen it. Ain't nobody ever, ever come to see it. So we started, they brought it out and we started going through it. We found a press page, a uh, pass. We found all kind of documents. We copied all of it and got it ready to bring back home. And then we decided that we were going to visit her son because she just had one child, Robert. And we called him and told him who we were and everything. And his, we talked to his son. His son said, well, my daddy wants to really meet you because you're from Russellville. And he hadn't talked to nobody there for a while. So when we get there, this kind of heavyset man, and he's gray and everything, but he's a nice, he's just real nice and friendly, man. I call him a gentleman's gentleman. So we go in and we get to talk to him. He said, who's that? Where's that Kentucky boy? He said, come in here. He said, uh, uh, who's your people? Who's your people? I said, well, my mother was Charlotte. He said, Charlotte, Charlotte who? I said, Charlotte Coleman. He said, Skip? I said, yeah, it was my mother. He said, you skips, child. He said, well, you know me and uh, Charles Thomas played basketball on the same team at Knob City. He was one of my best friends. He said, I was at y'all's house all the time. I never knew none of this. So we get to talking to him and we interview him. And then me and Dr. Dawson, one, I don't remember which one, we asked him a question. We said, Mr. Robert, I said, if you had a way to explain your mother, how would you explain her? What would you say about her? And he looked at us and he just shook his head. He said, start laughing. He said, persistent. Mm -hmm. I said, what do you mean? He said, she was persistent. She, he said, she wasn't ugly. She wasn't smart. She wouldn't treat you best. He said, but if she showed up on Monday and you didn't do what she wanted, she would be back Tuesday and she would be back Wednesday. He, she was persistent. So we came back and we done an exhibit on it and we called it Alice, Alice Dunnigan, The Persistent Fighter. Mm. And all of this that you see now is how it came about. That's a wonderful story and I want to thank uh, Selena Doss, uh, Professor Dr. Selena Doss and Michael Morrow, Director of um, the Seek Museum and also Hey Man uh, in Russellville, Kentucky for talking with us on Think Humanities. Thank you. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 50 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.